Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. You know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog training and dog behavioral issues. And today's episode is about what, Tanya? What are we discussing today? So we are discussing unpredictable aggression and aggression and reactivity in general as well. So when it comes to unpredictable aggression, it can be something a lot harder to work with. And I've recently had a couple of cases that were a little challenging to me. So this is how we ended up reaching out to Michael Shikashio, who is the expert on aggression in the field. And I am currently also taking his course, which is on aggression in dogs. It's a wonderful course that is helping me learn a lot in a more structured way. But I thought it would be fun to just throw some cases at him and see how he would approach it. And this can allow me compare my notes and recommendations to what he has to say. I also know that aggression, reactivity, resource guarding, all of that stuff, it's unfortunately a pretty common occurrence. So I'm sure that people are searching for resources and always looking for new information and things that they can try out with their dogs in order to help them be able to experience their trigger without a huge response or help train them to be really fine with a trigger depending on where the dog is in their journey and what would be a realistic outcome for the dog. It's a it's a process, as we always say. <laughs> yeah, Michael Shikashio is pretty much a superstar in the dog training world. He might not be a household name to everyone, but we've so anticipated talking with him and to get some of his thoughts on aggression. And so what is your sense of, and I know we talked about this when we talked to Debbie Jacobs about fearful dogs. What is your sense of the difference between reactivity and aggression? Yeah, so some of the points we were covering during the fearful dog um, episode were that even though a dog may be reacting, they're doing so out of fear and their main goal is not to harm the trigger that they're reacting towards. Whereas I do see aggression as 
the desire to cause damage or at least it results in the damage. So whether it's desired or instinctual, we're seeing that now we've moved past some of those warning signals and moving towards actual bites and making contact. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of intermixing between reactivity and aggression, you know, depending probably on the case. So yeah, let me introduce to you our guest today. Our guest is Michael Shikashio, who's a certified dog, be dog behavioral consultant, who's the founder of aggressivedog.com and focuses on teaching other professionals from around the world on how to successfully work aggression cases. He is a five-term president of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and is a full member of the Association of Professional Dog Trainers. Michael is sought after for his expert opinion by numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, the New York Post, Fox News, The List TV, Baltimore Sun, WebMD, Women's Health Magazine, Real Simple Magazine, Sirius XM Radio, the Chronicle of the Dog, and Stevie Dale's Pet World, in addition to the Family Pups podcast. He also hosts a popular podcast show, The Bitey End of the Dog, where he chats with the foremost experts on dog aggression. He is a featured keynote speaker at conferences, universities, and seminars around the world, and offers a variety of educational opportunities on the topic of canine aggression including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course that Tanya um, talked about and the annual Aggression in Dogs Conference. Which is coming up. Which is coming up. So we're so lucky to have him today. And as usual, we're just going to throw the kitchen sink of questions at him. A lot of the stuff is going to come from cases that Tanya works. And just to get a general sense of how he manages certain situations, deals with certain clients, deals with certain cases, Let's face it, having an aggressive dog is a hardship, can be a hardship on people's lives. It prevents or prohibits where people feel that they can go, who they can be with, who they're comfortable around. And as much as the dog might be having negative feelings uh, toward the world and the things in it, those feelings can transfer onto their parents as well. And so... Uh, we just want to provide this as a resource for those that have aggressive dogs and they have so many questions and they're just trying to make life better for their dogs as well as for themselves. Yeah, we can relate because we have a leash reactive dog. It's mostly under control, but sometimes he catches us off guard and we can relate to the frustration, the judgment that we may either see or imagine that other people are sending our way. So we completely understand that it is a roller coaster ride of emotions when it comes to dealing with or living with dogs that have those issues. But it will be great to also know how we can help them and how we can make our lives better. Yeah, and that's a good point, right? Showing our dogs empathy they are coming into our world, they're coming to our home, and they don't have the capability to understand our language, so they just have to figure everything out to get a sense of where they're safe, what is dangerous, what is not. 
And I think you could really see how this is a matter that we should try to help them with instead of, and, and at times I understand, but sometimes we can get upset. Mm -hmm. um, why is your behavior impinging on my life? I, I think that's very easy to think, especially at our, you know, not our best moments. And so you know, having empathy, uh, but also looking for solutions, having patience, but also knowing that you're human and uh, those are human reactions. Those are so important in these cases. Agreed. So great. So without further ado. So welcome to the podcast, Michael Shikashio. So let's get a sense of your journeys from you're just starting to learn and become a dog trainer to specializing in aggression cases today. Sure. Um, I started out as not really wanting to do much with tra dog training as a career. I kind of was dabbling in rescue and fostering a lot of dogs. And uh, I was really enjoying the fostering. And we had a setup, you know, my ex-wife and I at the time had a, had a nice setup for us with our two layer house, like two floor house rather. And like we could separate the dogs easily if we needed to. So we had tons of foster dogs come through the years, like hundreds of foster dogs. And sometimes like eight at a time, <laughs> kind of overdid it at some points. And um, the next thing you know, they start sending you more problem dogs, you know, the dogs that are more difficult, the dogs that, you know, experienced, I'm using air quotes there, experienced fosters could take on. And so uh, that's why I ended up getting more and more. And some of them were dogs that had aggression issues or handling issues or dogs that had issues on leash and things like that. And I started stumbling through like, how am I going to help these dogs better? If I'm fostering them, how are they going to get adopted? If I can't really change the behavior, because not a lot of people are signing up to uh, adopt aggressive dogs or dogs that might display aggressive behavior. So I started learning about behavior and training. And um, and that's when I really caught the bug for it, because I, I learned that the way to best help these dogs not get surrendered to rescues or given up to the shelters is to help them with their behavior issues. So that's when I kind of just dove headfirst into behavior. And I, again, still wasn't looking at it as a career. It was kind of just a side thing, but then it started to turn into taking on clients and helping the fosters. Like a lot of us start out and uh, diving deeper into going to different courses and schools and things like that for training and the different things, the options that are that were out there at the time. And that's when I started the business as part-time, taking kind of basic cases, you know, your typical pulling on leash, jumping up on grandma kind of cases. And then that blossomed into working <laughs> with strictly aggression cases, uh, which I, I found that when I started specializing, or really when you look at anything you're spending a lot of time on, you're just going to get better at it or you're forced to get better at it, especially if it's dogs that might bite you. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I started really honing down on the aggression stuff. And uh, I'm very fortunate now where I can teach other trainers how to work with aggression cases. And so that's that's where I'm at in my journey. Amazing. Yeah, we uh, we talked to uh, Debbie Jacobs uh, a couple podcasts ago about fearful dogs and reactivity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a question that um, we addressed with Tanya earlier. Um, but what is your sense of what is or what is your definition um, uh, of aggression and how does that differ from reactivity for you? Yeah, it's a it's a question I get quite often. And I think it's because in the dog training community, we use that term reactivity or reactive dog quite often. And I think it softens the the, the label of aggression or aggressive dog. 
I tend to not to use either label with any of my clients or really with any dogs. It's, it's, at least I tried not to. People are searching for, you know, those like aggressive dog or what to do with my dog aggression online. So that's why I have the aggressivedog.com website, but I actually don't call dogs aggressive or aggressive dogs. I say uh, aggression in dogs or aggressive behavior. That mm. way the dog doesn't get labeled with mm. aggressive or fearful or reactive because then that term kind of sticks with that dog. So I much prefer to focus on the behavior. And when you're looking at the terms reactive or aggressive, much of the behavior is going to look the same. So barking, lunging, growling, snarling, snapping. And sometimes the big differentiator in our community is when we talk about dogs that bite or dogs that aren't biting. Mm -hmm. So I find that a lot of trainers tend to look at that as far as the differentiator between reactive and aggressive. But for me, I don't, I don't actually use either term or describe either any dog with those terms because they're really just not helpful for for the case so much better if, if if tanya was to say oh mike i got this case for you it's a dog that's barking and lunging on leash i could call it aggressive or i could call it reactive or more importantly i could say the dog is barking and lunging on leash how are we going to help the dog with those behaviors so that's that's my sort of undefining those terms mm. <laughs> so I, I i'm understanding that uh, you probably deal with these cases pretty similarly. So whether they're pulling because they're are scared or pulling because they're aggressive, you're largely dealing with them in the same way. Uh, yes, there's quite a few similarities in how I'm working with those cases. Um, we always want to ask, what do we want the dog to do instead? Um, the difference with some dogs is, this is not the vast majority of dogs. Most dogs that are behaving, for instance, barking and lunging on leash are just, um, it's coming from a place of fear or anxiety about the particular stimulus they're barking or lunging at or trying to go after. But there are dogs that they're doing the same behavior. And it looks like it might be aggressive when they're actually, it's a function of frustration because they want to get closer to see their friend or the, the dog that they just played with last week. And so they start barking and lunging because they can't get there fast enough. And so I treat those a little differently because the underlying motivation or underlying emotion is different. Uh, but again, the similarities uh, of how you treat those behaviors are are very, very close. And so that's the nice thing mm -hmm. about positive reinforcement-based training is that the, the application is very similar. And so if you're using positive reinforcement-based training with the dog that's fearful or the dog that's just frustrated and trying to get close to the other dog, it's the behavior we're looking to reinforce. But with the fearful dogs, mm -hmm. we are also classically counter-conditioning saying, hey, listen, it's not mm -hmm. so bad when this other thing appears in the environment because you're getting treats or whatever else you like when that stimulus appears. Great. So let's talk about unpredictable aggression, which is, you know, the topic that we want to discuss with you. Obviously, if your dog is reacting to other dogs in the environment 100% of the time, it's a little bit easier to train or deal with that situation because it's predictable and you could do create training, uh, training setups to counter condition it in those moments. But let's just imagine 99% of the time, Home visitors come, everything's fine. 99% of the time, your dog is at the daycare and they've been at the daycare for three years and everything's fine. And But just 1% of the time, and 1% of the time could be quite a lot if the consequences are quite severe, right? Maybe another dog gets bit, maybe a person gets bit. So when you hear something like that or um, some trainer comes to you like that, what is your sense of those cases? 
Yeah, it's an, so it's an interesting, it's another interesting label for me when we say uh, a dog is being unpredictable, uh, because we have to kind of define what that means, especially when we're when we're working with clients and how they're defining unpredictable. You know, we hear it a lot. You guys, I'm sure, hear the same thing. Like, oh, he just it just happens out of the blue, or he's such a good boy most of the time, except for when he bites grandma. Or, you know, <laughs> you, so you hear these small slivers of 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 undesirable behavior happening. And let's face it, the most most aggression cases, the, the behavior is really happening less than one tenth of a percent of the time because. Uh, you know, dogs aren't going to be biting every single day for hours a day, you know, so we're looking mm -hmm. at very, very small percentage of the time they actually are showing aggression. And, um, and then we have to look at those moments and determine, you know, what, what was unpredictable, what seemed unpredictable about it. And it's usually uh, one of a few factors that I, that I help educate clients with. And uh, one of the first things to look at is the body language of the dog, because oftentimes the dog's communicating loud and clear, hey, listen, I'm going to bite you if you continue doing what you're doing. It's just that the clients or a lot of uh, people new to dogs might not recognize that the same way as we can as professionals. And so that's one, one big layer of it. And that's where we can turn unpredictability into predictability. And uh, the, the more you start to watch dogs, the more predictable everything gets to the point where it gets a little um, strange when other people watch you seeing dogs you know so i sometimes do seminars or and then and i'll see a dog give me a very subtle signal and i'll back away and even some of the professional trainers are like why did you back away at that moment i didn't see anything and then you go back and you can either play the video or or show what's happening you can just catch those subtleties mm -hmm. and then you say then it becomes predictable but like if i went further there's a high probability this dog would escalate it so certainly uh, body language. I also look at the context in which the behavior happens, because once you start getting a behavior history, you're going to see the behaviors happening very often in the same context. So um, for instance, uh, a dog that guards certain items, you know, uses behavior to keep a certain item in their possession. Uh, and then you start to look at the context in which it happens. It might only happen with one certain type of toy or food or around a certain area, or maybe they only display uh, barking and lunging on leash towards certain dogs or certain people. And maybe the owner just hasn't recognized that yet. So once you identify the context and the triggers in the environment, then there's another layer of predictability. Um, and the final one I also help clients understand is what we call distant antecedents. That's like the fancy term for things that happen to the dog that are going to make it more likely for them to display aggressive behavior later on or right after that particular negative event. And it happens to humans and all animals all the time, you know. So and the analogy I use is, for instance, you're coming home from work and you're driving and somebody cuts you off and flips you the bird and and, and just, you know, you, so you start getting grumpy and then you get home and like, you know, the some other neighbor's dog pooped on your lawn and then you finally get in the house <laughs> and then your partner's like you know can you do the dishes you know do the dishes or take the garbage out and you can you know you, you're all fueled up you know angry and like no i'm not gonna do that and that's because we've had previous stressors and which would make it unpredictable and your partner's like you're so unpredictable and then <laughs> that's what the dogs can experience the same is that we don't know that they might be you know barking and lunging out the window at people going by while the owner's at work or, but recognizing those things, especially things that like underlying pain or discomfort can, can be the fuels for aggressive behavior. And if the clients are getting good at recognizing those factors that well, as well, then they're going to be able to also see something else that can help them predict when their dog 
might be more likely to behave aggressively. So I think for, we can change unpredictability to predictability through education and helping the clients understand what's going on with their dog. And we'll be back right after this break. The University of Denver's Institute for Human-Animal Connection is conducting a study to explore the impacts of pet dogs on stress. They're recruiting adults who have a well-behaved dog and who are available to come to the DU campus for about two and a half hours, undergo a brief experience designed to elevate your stress levels and to provide blood and saliva samples. If you participate, you'll be given $100 for your time. If you or anyone you know in the Denver area is interested in learning more, please reach out to them at kevin.morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, at du.edu, or reach out to them directly via phone at 303-564-3886. Now back to the episode. So I have a couple of case studies that I wanted to throw your way. Um, the first one was <laughs> the first one was just one consultation that I did, and the case was as following. So it was a dog who um, is about let's say a year and a half or so, and the dog is generally sociable and loves playing with other dogs. So that dog has been going to daycare for a year. And very often or regularly, the dog receives positive um, cards at the end of the day. So he made this friend, he played so great up until the day when there is another dog that was laying down next to this dog. And then all of, all of a sudden goes and bites that other dog. Now, obviously, the client's questions are, can I bring my dog back to daycare? Um, how do we go about this from now on? So what will be a couple um, steps that you may uh, recommend a client like this? And what is your prognosis about going back to daycare with such a history? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question because um, that's part of the, the fun of our job as behavior consultants is to kind of be like detectives. We've got to go in and look at the scene of the crime. And I don't want to call it a crime because aggressive behavior is a normal response for any animal, including humans when they're under threat. But it's, uh, it's sort of the same thing. You go in and you want to ask questions, ask the daycare staff questions, ask the owner questions about different changes. So some of the things that we were talking about, like stressors, previous stressors that day or the day before, even the week before, changes in the home, mm -hmm. changes in the environment. And most definitely, we want to assess if there's any kind of changes in health or underlying pain or discomfort issues. That's one of the, the most common things I see in daycare environments is that a dog uh, that's been going for a long time suddenly displays aggressive behavior. A lot of times it's because they got injured or somebody's not seeing that, you know, their hip is hurting them or they got a paw injury and the other dog uh, it, uh, kind of re-injures it or hurts the dog. And then the dog's just responding normally. They're like, that hurts. Don't mm -hmm. do that. Bark, bark, lunge, lunge, or maybe bite. And the other dog's like, oh, I'm sorry, or maybe not. But that's what usually happens in those kind of scenarios. So I will often ask a lot of questions about, you know, what could have possibly changed? Because changes in behavior are much different than dogs that have been doing it for a long time. We see a 
the, the gradual escalation or we see a pattern of it. So looking at health and underlying medical issues is very much something I focus on in those cases. Um, I would also look at the dog's age um, to see some dogs as they start to get closer to social maturity to two and a half years old, we might see changes in behavior and sometimes they might not be the most appropriate for a daycare environment anymore. So when they were kids, for instance, they love to play at the playground, but now that they're older, they want to go off to the bars and start drinking and doing all those things. And that's, that's the difference in, in, you know, social maturity for dogs. Uh, and I would also look at, is the other dog familiar? Is this a new dog? Maybe they, it's a, they haven't had interactions and maybe this dog gets along great with all dogs except for this one that was actually instigating something or communicating in a mm. way that actually caused the the response in that dog so uh, those are just some of the main things that would start start to kind of look to unpack uh and then kind of go from there sometimes we have to dig a little deeper but probably the most common reasons are some of the ones i listed there and, and oh, I forgot to mention, I forgot to answer your question about prognosis, which is um, depends on the level of biting. So if, you know, regardless of who's, you know, I'm using air quotes again, fault it is, is the level of bite is important. So even if this dog was injured or was stressed out or had some reason to bite the other dog, if it's a high level bite, so doing injury, usually causing the do other dog to seek veterinary care, you know, uh, mm -hmm. In a, in a normal sense, uh, you know, sometimes daycares and, and all the pros are going to be extra cautious. And even if it's just a slight nick, they're still going to say, we'll pay for your vet care and all that stuff. But it can be, if it's a higher level bite, typically puncture wounds uh, that are deep, mm -hmm. um, that, that presents a more difficult prognosis because we don't know when that dog might bite again if the dog gets irritated or agitated by another dog or another dog's communicating in the wrong way. So um, that's when the prognosis typically lends itself towards maybe this dog isn't appropriate for daycare anymore because of the risk of a potential mm -hmm. risk for other dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was the case. It was a puncture wound that required stitches. Um, so several um, punctures there on the dog's hind leg. Okay. Well, that this gives us a, a great way to see where we start and how we continue um, in a case like this and just if you don't mind, I'm going to throw in one more case at you. So this dog is an older dog. So maybe about nine years of age, let's say the dog has had resource guarding issues with his uh, female owner and the dog has worked with always with positive approach to training with a trainer first and then to veterinary behaviorist. And then as people change locations, so come to our town, I began working with them as well. So the couple lives together. They've seen a decrease in the guarding behavior. So the dog would attack the man whenever he's close to the female owner or if they try to hug. So things like that are, are fine now. However, we are continuing to see some issues that now the, the truth trigger seems to be a little more sudden. So in the last, let's say six months, we've had two instances of um, the first one couple getting dinner 
one thing falls on the ground, um, you know, people without thinking about it, man just reaches down to grab the thing, dog kind of chases him and bites him. So the bites are also escalating. Second, most recent instance was dog and woman in a room and she is exercising on a bike. She had dropped a bottle. Now we're starting to see the pattern there, right? A bottle on the ground, a man enters the room. She asks him, hey, can you pick this bottle? And as he's walking towards without even reaching down, the dog is already after him cornering the man and attacking him and we've even before this one have done a lot of the desensitization and counter conditioning to dog on a tether people bending down grabbing things dropping item items being outside of the room entering suddenly with good pauses in between so it seems like we've done everything we possibly could for controlled settings but then we we get those bites at the end of the day. So what are your thoughts or what will be an approach for you there? Uh, good, good question. Good case to share too, because there's a couple of things we'd want to unpack there. And what I typically see in these, uh, when it's when you're kind of spinning your wheels and you're not making a lot of, or you have made change and then all of a sudden it comes back and those kind of scenarios. Um, so uh, a couple a couple cases I've had where it's still being inadvertently reinforced by the owner. So, um, and everybody has their reasons and sometimes they've had negative events or even traumatic events happen to them in the past. So dogs that guard their owners, uh, sometimes it's genetic, meaning they're born and raised to do that from their, you know, working line Malinois, for instance, would be a classic case of probably genetics and take, you know, doing what they're supposed to do in the case. And so I would look at that and, and see, is this dog, you know, kind of more prone to doing that from a genetic standpoint and they're just doing their job in their mind, or has it been inadvertently reinforced and encouraged by the owner because they've had a negative event or something maybe sometimes is going on in the home that we're not seeing. Now, I'm not, of course not saying that's what's happening in your, in your case, but sometimes there's, you know, some arguing or disagreements or worse between the couple um, and that we're not seeing that, but it's what's happening behind the closed doors, which then mm. the, it ends up getting, of course, inadvertently reinforced because one partner is going to be like, yeah, that's, you know, even if it's just a head nod in agreement of what the dog is doing, that can be enough to reinforce the dog. So sometimes we have to dig a little deeper into that because, and it's, of course, sometimes they're not going to reveal any of that. However, it is something to put in the back of their mind about, this is why the dog's still doing what they're doing. So that's mm -hmm. just part of it. Uh, the next thing I look at is for like the dropped objects uh, thing. Um, just a quick side note. If a dog has a startle response that has turned into a startle response towards aggression, so the dog gets startled by something and then immediately lashes out at whatever's closest nearby, um, then I would also look at underlying pain issues there because there is some um, research been done that shows that startle responses and pain issues can be very much related to aggression. In other words, the dog thinks that bottles dropping 
causes pain, which causes them to react. So um, they don't think they, they have a hard time separating the two, like bottles aren't the one causing the pain. Um, it's the startle response causing the pain. So just want to throw that out there as a side note. Um, but then I would look at, is that also, again, being inadvertently reinforced somehow, or is it still being maintained in some way where it's other objects? Because what can happen is, is it starts to, you get like what's called generalized guarding. It's anything the person reaches down for. The dog's like, oh, you might take that from me. Or you're reaching down, so what is around me that I've got to guard? Oh, it, this looks good enough to guard. It's a little sock on the floor or a shoe or something I've never guarded in my life, but you're still reaching down. So that means you're trying to take something, probably of value to me. So I guess it is valuable. So now it's time to guard it. And that's it's just the stimulus of any reaching or movements. And then it gets even more subtle than that, where it could be just a sh like a shift. I've had clients where they're sitting at their desk, just working on their computer, minding their own business, but they shift to like in their seats and to the dog, they see that subtle shift. And the next thing you know, the dog's going after them because they think the person is about to reach down towards the floor or something. So it can turn into those uh, real subtle cues in the environment in which the dog responds to. So um, looking for that is important as well. One thing that can be super helpful is video. Like just get the, if possible, get the clients to just video stuff all day uh, and then wait for any kind of response. You know, obviously if the dogs, um, we want to have safety in play, uh, but you can still see those responses if you have the baby gate up or the dog is muzzled in a certain context. You still able to see the responses and what triggered it. That'll give you a lot of information because usually history taking alone is not going to reveal that. We've got to see the subtleties and what's happening in that context or in that environment then oftentimes you're like, oh, oh, I see that because you play the video back a couple of times. Sometimes even me, I have to I have to play it back a few times to catch the little detail, but then it becomes completely obvious. And then when you tell the client, they're like, that makes total sense because that's what the dog did last time I did that or whatever. So, um, so sometimes it's just a matter of digging a little deeper and then adjusting accordingly. So that way you can get things kind of back on track uh, to try to reduce that but that those are tricky cases because it's hard not to replicate that particular trigger mm. or that antecedent um, at least a couple of times while you're going through the behavior change process mm -hmm. yeah so let's talk about that so progress with the client so maybe certain triggers the client is aware that you know maybe the lean over maybe the grabbing but then you set that up and mm -hmm. tanya or another trainer is like hey why don't you lean over to grab this thing and the dog is just maybe just wagging its tail, not doing anything. And so I, I think there are situations, and I'd love to get your opinion about your conversations you might have with other trainers where they set everything just right. And they're like, okay, this is exactly how it was done. And this is exactly how we're gonna set it up. And then nothing happens. And then they try it again and then nothing happens. And then the clock is ticking. I, I, they're, they're paying money for this session. Um, you know, they've, set aside time and effort to, to make sure that this gets done. And, and maybe there's some frustration on the end of the client. There's some frustration on the end of the trainer because obviously the trainer wants, you know, they, they want to help and the client wants to be helped and it's not going in a good way. And so how do you consult with certain trainers that that happens to them and maybe they feel like, uh, despite their best efforts, they weren't able to help them and and maybe they feel bad about their incapability or maybe they feel bad that the client is viewing them in a certain way. 
Yeah, it's it's such a great question because I think that's a lot of it's one of the issues a lot of us struggle with, not only with aggression cases, but just, you know, sometimes any behavior issues can have a kind of sticking point or it gets you're spinning your wheels and you're not making any changes and then you feel like a failure or maybe the client's getting frustrated. So one of the best things that both the client and the trainer or consultant can do right from the beginning is to establish what realistic goals and expectations are, but in addition, have a conversation about these things might not work, but there's other things we can try. I always tell my clients right in the beginning, there's no magic fix. This is not like we're fixing a refrigerator or fixing a bike where you have like this moment of it's fixed. Your dog is a uh, you know, sentient being and there's going to be changes in behavior, ups and downs. Some things are going to work. Some things don't, just like they do with humans. And that sets some tone of like, okay, there, there could be times where we're hitting roadblock, roadblocks or speed bumps along the way. But as a team, and this is the most important part, as the client also can establish this in the beginning, asking questions like, you know, what, what can I do differently? What can I do to support this as a team? And work as like what's called a helping alliance. Dr. Melanie Cerrone kind of keyed me into that term, but what's called a helping alliance in which you are working as a team together to make adjustments along the way and to be realizing that, yes, we need to work as a team because there's going to be days where it's going to be great and there's going to be days where it's not going to be great at all. And to if you are expecting those things ahead of time, then you it's less disappointing when it actually does happen. So from the trainer consultant perspective, I think it's also important to have those additional tools and, and techniques that you can shift to um, if necessary. So if you're using, for instance, a classical counter conditioning strategy, do we need to put in more operant behaviors or differential reinforcement strategies? Um, can, do we need to shift to using uh, potentially talk to a veterinary behaviorist about meds? Do we need to look at different environments or different training options? So there's, there's lots of tweaks and adjustments we can make. But communicate that to your client ahead of time, because if they think you're like this, mm -hmm. you know, one trick, one type of technique, and that's all you got, then if it doesn't work, they're going to show you the door. But if you're like, this is what I usually start with, and I use I use this exact phrase, this is what I usually start with in cases just like yours. That's typically the most effective. However, it doesn't work in every case, and it may not work in your case. So we want to be prepared to shift gears, and I'm prepared to do that with you um, as we go along if we need to. And that sets the precedence so that way, again, later on, there's less disappointment if things don't work. And I think that can be a good segue towards talking about management because as I was going through your course, it really became apparent to me that when it comes to aggressive behaviors or responses it it really is about reimagining management and putting it on a whole other level <laughs> that we need to ensure the success of the dog not practicing the behavior so i was wondering how do you ensure that clients can make peace with all the cha uh, changes that are going to occur into their home into their life and um, get them on board with implementing a pretty um, serious management strategy for a certain period of time. I, I love to use analogies with this kind of uh, question because I think clients will understand things better if you use analogies. And I also use some 
uh, I don't want to call them scare tactics, but you know, depending on the client that's sitting in front of me, some some things I say can work better with than others. And one of the things I do, especially if if there's more than if there's like a partner or somebody else or the family, all the family sitting there, is you always have somebody that's worried about the money. And I always tell them, you know, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper to get a muzzle or put a baby gate here than to get sued, you know, and then I quote the average dog bites lawsuits now in the you know five figure range um and just how much it can be costly if their dog does bite somebody and that most of the states in the u.s are now strict liability so it doesn't matter most of the time what the person was doing they could be walking on your property trying to sell some books to you or you know try to you know get you a new car insurance warranty or whatever it is they're trying to sell you, they're going to be on your property and the dog bites them. It's the dog's fault. It's your fault. It doesn't matter unless the person's like literally intruding or, or, you know, trying to break into your home. Most of the time it's strict liability. So the management is a lot cheaper than, than having to deal with that dog bite. So that work, that one works pretty well. But then I go into why management can be so effective for the behavior change standpoint. And I will use, you know, a lot of people are used to dealing with uh, staying healthy or weight loss or dieting at some point in their life. And so they're conscious about what they're eating. And I'll say to them, it's, you know, if we want to manage things when you're trying to get healthy or be on a diet or, or, or change, make a lifestyle change for better health, what's one of the things that's going to be the worst thing for you is if I fill your freezer with ice cream and your, your closet with cookies and candy and all that stuff, that's not setting you up for good outcomes because that's poor management. And especially if I leave those things out in nice bowls and they're easily accessible, that's even worse for you. So same thing for dogs. If we don't want them practicing an undesirable behavior, we've got to set them up for success. So um, I find that a lot of clients start to grasp that analogy like oh that makes sense i've got to prevent i got to keep those things away or prevent my dog from having access to those things for now as we make these changes and another analogy i use especially in the more difficult cases is how much behavior weight does your dog have so some cases you're going to have a 500 pound dog behaviorally that's going to take a long time and we have to be patient and make gradual changes the dog's not going to lose 350 pounds and be an athlete overnight. It's going to take time. And in some other cases, you have dogs that are already kind of healthy and fit behaviorally. We just need to make small adjustments to get you to that goal. So uh, I find that analogy works as well because people will start to grasp that I can't just change this overnight. Uh, and I may only be able to get so far with some dogs, but we can certainly make steps in the right direction so that's that's the my management selling strategies and usually that those uh, at least some combination of those works pretty well for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well let, let's talk about time then obviously it's not going to take overnight and so if a client asks you here's my case please help me and just give me a general sense of how long will it take for my dog to get better? And I know that's a loaded question, but how would you answer something like that? Or how would you advise other trainers to answer that question? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for that one. I wish I knew, you know, I, cause the, the, the difficulty there is what is success for the, you know, defined as every client is going to have a different uh, perception of what success looks like for them. And it can be, let's, let's use it a case example. Let's use a dog that guards their food bowl, right? So they want to solve this, this dog that bites people as they go near the food bowl. And success in one case might be, 
I'm there for an hour and I fix the problem completely. And the way I do that is I'll first suggest to them, you know, can you just want you feed your dog in a separate room for starters so that we, we can manage this issue. So nobody's going near the food bowl while the dog's eating. So during gender time, while everybody's cooking, the dog's not eating right at your feet. The dog's in a, in a pantry area or somewhere where it's behind a gate where it can eat in peace. Nobody's going to bother it. And the client's like, oh, that's a great idea. I never thought of that. So thanks and <laughs> see you later. And that's problem solved. So that's fixing it. That's That's their success versus another client might have much loftier goals. I want to be able the dog to be able to eat here and everybody's able to walk around. Um, I don't have any other spaces where I can feed the dog, for instance, or, you know, they give you these valid reasons and their success might be like, I want everybody, including my grandkids to be able to come over and walk by the food ball without any aggressive response from my dog, much higher level of difficulty and, and aspirations in that case. So, it really, for me, depends on uh, what success looks like. And then, of course, you got to jump into the variables of how much the behavior can be changed, just how much behavior weight that dog has, so to speak. Uh, if there's under underlying medical issues that need to be addressed, are there behavior meds that need to take hold? Um, are there a multitude of behavior issues? Is it not just aggression? Does the dog also have separation anxiety and pulls on leash and does a lot of other things we need to address? So um, really, it's, it's almost like looking at the prognosis, you know, in, in terms of the overall potential for a case when you're determining how long it can take. Uh, but if a question, if a client's really just focused on that, like how long is this going to take? How many sessions do I need? How long is it going to take? I'll give them a general um, uh, average. So I'll say typically, and I make sure I'm very clear about typically on average. So I don't say, you know, we're definitely going to get this done in three sessions. I'll say on average, typically it takes about three sessions with this particular issue. Uh, that being said, we might need to do more. We might even get away with less in some cases, but uh, I want to prepare them that it's there's no definitive answer. And with that being said, what are some of the main factors that you look out for when it comes to directing the client to talk to their veterinarian or a veterinary behaviorist for potentially including some uh, meds that can help with the case? Yeah, it's, uh, it's typically, um, I guess I should answer this in a way that sometimes you get pushback from clients that maybe saying, oh, my dog's healthy or there doesn't know there's nothing wrong with my dog. And so I should address that part first. Um, and I'll explain to them that, again, many underlying uh, medical issues can contribute to aggressive behaviors. And so we want to make sure we're ruling those things out or else I could do all of the, I could give the client the most beautiful behavior change strategies in the world. But if we don't address the underlying medical issues, uh, that, and that includes imbalances in the brain chemistry, um, it's not going to fix anything. We can, we just be spinning our wheels, you know? And again, I use analogies for that. Like if somebody's got a just had knee surgery and you know your partner comes over and just grabs your knee i don't care how much training i do or behavior change strategy stuff it's still the person's still going to react pretty upset about that and dogs are the same so if we don't address the underlying stuff then it's not going to change it and that also goes with behavior meds is again just the brain is an organ just like any other organ when it comes to the balances and the chemistry of that organ and so a lot of people understand you know when somebody's got diabetes they need insulin in a, in a lot of cases or other other chemical imbalances in the body they need something 
some medication for uh, this, the, the, the modern science of medicine to help them. Same thing for dogs and same thing for brain chemistry. And sometimes uh, behavior meds can be extremely helpful for aggression cases to help balance uh, what's not, what the dog is lacking, especially from things like serotonin uh, levels. So there's, there's quite a bit that, um, that can, dogs can benefit from, from working uh, as a team with us, with veterinarians or veterinary behaviorists. So uh, that's typically how I kind of approach that issue, uh, making sure that we're ruling those things out. Now, I will mention that it's important as trainers and consultants and for the for the pet owners that are listening in is that as trainers and consultants we can't recommend specific tests or specific medication because unless we are veterinarians as well because that would be practicing outside our boundaries however we can we can find things or notice things that would make us refer to the veterinarian or veterinary behaviorist. For instance, seeing a behavior pattern that's not, uh, that's kind of resilient, resilient to any kind of behavior change strategies. Perfect example of saying, you know, this would be something we should probably talk to a veterinary behaviorist about. Or I noticed your dog, you know, walking in a certain way, or there's a limp there, and your dog also is, you know, getting aggressive towards people when they approach it while it's on its dog bed. Um, perfect example of saying that could be an underlying pain issue. So let's get that ruled out by your vet. So it's, you're not saying, oh, your dog's got hip dysplasia or ACL tears, diagnosing anything. We definitely don't want to say that, but we can certainly notice things that are going to help us uh, to refer to vets or veterinary behaviorists. Yeah, I think that's a good time to talk about when you run out of options, right? So let's talk about behavioral euthanasia when these cases come up for you, where is that line for you? And when are you comfortable recommending that as an option? Yeah, so I should say first and foremost that I, I never actually will use the words, you, you know, you need to euthanize your dog or I suggest you euthanize your dog because it's really the client's decision. They're the ones that know their dog the most. They know their own personal situation. And I'm never gonna fault anybody for that because their unique situation is what they're working with. And we don't know what they're going to, their experiences, their unique uh, life journey. So, um, you know, it's very important not to fault clients for, for seeking out that decision or, or even discussing it because there could be very legitimate reasons for it. Even if it's a dog where we're saying, you know, if this dog lived with me, it'd probably be okay, but they're not professional trainers and they're not maybe in an environment or they don't have the setup to do that. Like for instance, it could be a dog that's biting children and maybe we don't have any children in our home. We could be like, Oh, totally fine in our home. We could take care of it. But this client has children. So we don't know. And it may not be ethical or even safe to, rehome that dog or put that dog in another home uh, or in another neighborhood where there could be children. And so my job is to help them navigate that decision process by giving them objective information to assess and look at themselves. So I will help them understand, you know, the bite scales and the level of bites and the severity that can present in certain cases. I'll help them understand what management options they have. I'll help them understand, are there additional things they can try, whether it's a veterinary behaviorist or medication? Um, is, it, is there options for rehoming? Is it safe to do so? Can I help them navigate that option? Um, is it, you know, underlying medical issues we got to address and how long that might take? And so I, uh, there's, there's actually 18 different things I look at when 
I'm assessing the overall prognosis in a case, that then I help the clients understand those variables. Now, I don't go through all 18 things with every single client, but I will look at the most important variables that pertain to their case, help them see that, help them kind of weigh those things and understand, you know, what is a bite scale? What is the difference between a level five and a level two bite? And they start to understand those things and why it matters. Um, then they can make that decision what's best for their particular case and their outcome. Um, and so that's generally how I, I start to navigate that conversation. And um, I think it's also important to be you know, start from a place of empathy, but continue with the empathy and support if they need it, you know, even after making that decision, uh, because it can be, there's a lot of stigma around behavioral euthanasia. There's a lot of criticism. They're going to be told, why would you ever do that? You know, you're evil. Um, you know, you save all the dogs, you can save every animal. And that's absolutely not true. There's dogs out there that are just extremely dangerous and very high risk that, I wouldn't feel comfortable seeing out there in society. It's just it, the the risk is just so great for a partic some particular dogs to do great damage. And what I, I when anybody's arguing that position, saying you can save all dogs, you could totally send this dog somewhere, a sanctuary or something, or you know this dog could could definitely be rehomed or rehabbed or something like that. I'll ask that person, well, would you okay be okay adopting this dog yourself, or would you be okay this dog living right next to you and your family? That's a great mm -hmm. question to ask because then they'll say, oh, they kind of give it a second thought. So, you know, go ahead and adopt the dog yourself if you feel it can be saved. And uh, then they start to really think about it. Or sometimes they do make that decision and quickly realize that this is not, you know, there's, you can't rehab. And I'm using air quotes there, rehab every single dog or makes the changes you need for the dog to be safe in society. And one other quick note too is, Another question I get is, you know, isn't there a sanctuary or some place I could send this dog or some trainer I could send this dog to and they could fix the dog? And unfortunately, behavior doesn't work that way. It's, you know, it's it, aggression is a behavior that we don't turn off like a light switch. The dog's learned it mm -hmm. works really well to keep scary or threatening things away. So it's always in their repertoire. And a dog that's bitten to the level of severely injuring or even killing somebody is going to remember, hey, that worked out really well the last time I used it. So why won't I do it next time? And so our job is to, we can reduce the frequency of the behavior through training and through management, but you never completely turn it off like a light switch. So uh, those sanctuaries and rehab places can uh, make some changes, but it's typically unsafe to go to a sanctuary and then look for a rehoming or worse. Sometimes the dog's put in a situation where sure, the dog's going to live, but they're going to live in a eight by 10 enclosure for the rest of their life mm -hmm. without any enrichment, without with very little interaction with people and dogs. And the dog's going to self-suffer from a welfare standpoint. So we sometimes have to ask, how ethical is that to do? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a difficult topic um, to discuss with clients, but I think it's important that we're prepared for that conversation as professionals uh, and, and navigating it from a empathetically and with kindness. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Definitely need to add some tools there so that we know exactly what we need to discuss and how to navigate that conversation. And as we are starting to approach the end of our time together, I just have a couple questions left. 
Uh, the first one is, what do you tell people who tell you that this dog with serious issues can be trained without corrections? So uh, I would say yes, <laughs> a simple answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's what I focus on and what I've been, what I've been focusing on for a long time is, is spreading the message that even the most severe aggression cases, and I mean some dogs that are pretty dangerous, uh, people think that you have to have a heavy hand or you have to be domineering. And unfortunately, that's the furthest from the truth. A lot of these dogs are displaying aggression to that degree because they're afraid or they haven't been heard. They haven't been listened to with their communication. So they're escalating. And so if we start from a place of, again, kindness and empathy with the dogs as well, we're going to be able to understand why they're displaying that aggression. And you're going to realize that it's not going to be met with force or any kind of coercive techniques. It has to be met with kindness and reinforcing them for desirable behaviors, as well as changing how they feel and making it a positive situation with whatever they're having an issue with. And once we do that, that's what addresses the underlying aggression. It's not the suppression of it. You can suppress behaviors all day long, but we'll never address the underlying reason for the behavior if we're using strictly uh, punishment or heavy hands. So yeah, that's my, uh, the message I've been trying to spread for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and we're thankful to you for that. And I have just one more question. So yesterday we put out a message for our Insta friends. Um, if there was a question they wanted to ask, what would that be? And this one from our client, Becca, uh, summarizes it. Um, so why are so many dogs bad with puppies or not good with other dogs? We encounter, encounter this a lot on hikes. <laughs> Short summary, why is that? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, we have to look at the individual dog, um, you know, so yes, there are some dogs that are not good with puppies and other dogs, but I always look at the dog individually and kind of determine why that particular dog has issues, because sometimes it could be the dog's fearful of the dog. Sometimes the dog just wants to take out all other dogs that it comes across. Uh, sometimes there's a negative association that the dog has had. And sometimes with puppies, it's normal behavior. Sometimes we see, we get alarmed at, you know, an, an adult dog maybe growling at a puppy uh, that's coming near their bone, but that's normal, normal communication in the dog world. And so sometimes um, determining if it's normal or if it's, you know, there's a underlying reason that's going to be quickly explained, uh, that's, that's usually what we're looking for, for when we're looking at the individual dog. So, uh, but I hear you. Yes, there are <laughs> quite a few dogs, especially right now that a lot of trainers are staying busy with uh, that have issues with other dogs. Yeah, and I can imagine the hike paths are pretty narrow. So very close encounters with a lot of different dogs that doesn't make it easier, but it's hard to determine really why, one reason why we're seeing so many of those. Yeah, and what what you said earlier just really resonated with me in that, you know, when, I, I think for us too as human beings when we don't feel heard or when people are not hearing our needs and they're not doing anything to meet them, we can get quite aggressive too because, you know, we want to feel like we're being cared for and if if we feel ignored, sometimes our frustration and sadness can come out as aggression. I, I think that's a good way of looking at it and a good way of kind of having more empathy toward our dogs. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, I had, that was a good quote actually shared with me yesterday about, um, you know, it's best to try to understand rather than trying to be understood. So with our dogs, mm. much better to come from a place. So let's understand why the dog is, is behaving this way. Let's really try to figure that out rather than trying to make the dog understand what we're trying to force on them. And the same with our clients, you know, we need to come from a place of let's sit there and understand regardless. I mean, you guys have sure heard the same many horror stories from clients or things you, you got to like bite your tongue and like, Oh my gosh, why are they doing that? But so it's a lot of the times there's a legitimate reason for what they're doing or how they're interacting with. So we have to, we have to come from a place of understanding first before we try to make them understand what we're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially in our political environment, too. I, I think that's very, very good advice. So let, let's give you some shine. Uh, obviously, what do you have going on? How can people contact you? How can people reach you? How can people start a conversation with you? Sure. Thank you. Um, it, the best place to find me is aggressivedog.com. Uh, it's pretty easy to remember <laughs> considering the topic. So aggressivedog.com has all the information about any of the uh, webinars and videos. I've I actually just relaunched that site uh, and it's got uh, some articles, videos, podcasts, um, courses, free webinars. And so I'm trying to make it the go-to place on the internet for learning about and helping you know dogs with aggression for both pet owners and trainers. Um, and then, of course, we have the Aggression in Dogs Conference coming up, depending on when this podcast airs. Uh, but that'll be uh, October 22nd to 24th. And that'll be live streamed from Chicago. I'm excited for that. So kind of the two biggest things happening right now. Wonderful. And I know you're coming to Colorado as well. When when was that? When was your class? Colorado is, yeah, Colorado is the weekend after. It's November 5th and 6th, I'll be presenting with Dr. Chris Pockle, uh, which is amazing. He's an amazing uh, presenter and veterinary behaviorist. So we uh, we're doing a weekend workshop on um, the, the title of the workshop is called The Great Big Dog Aggression Workshop 2, because uh, <laughs> it's the second in the series we've done together. And uh, this one, we're focusing on meds, moods, and modifications. So we're really looking at the emotions and the particular medication that, that he's Dr. Paco, of course, is going to focus on. Uh, so I'm excited for that weekend as well. And that one's going to be in person, and it's through Behavior Vets. Behavior Vets is the uh, team that's hosting us there in Colorado. Wonderful. I hope I get to be there. Uh, <laughs> I'll, make, I'll need to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mike. We, we learned so much, and thank you for all the hard work that you are doing in this community to help so many of these aggressive dogs that we know and a lot of people are learning that they're just trying to get over their fear and their understanding uh, of this world and so to look at them with greater empathetic eyes and all our senses is something that we uh, really value i appreciate it i appreciate the time and the opportunity to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes.
And don't forget to visit familypups.com slash podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania Demartini Price, unpredictable aggression with Michael Shikashio, fearful dogs with Debbie Jacobs, puppy socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more.